Hey friends, I'm back. Did you miss me? I certainly missed you. I'm Desiree Nielsen and welcome to the All Sorts Podcast. We are officially in season two of the pod and I have to thank you again. If you've been with us since episode one, your support for this podcast blows me away and I'm having so much fun making this for you and season two will not disappoint. The guests are fantastic, and I'm even going to pop in for a few solo episodes over the course of the season. So be sure to hit us up on Instagram at the All Sorts Pod to let us know what you'd like to see in these solo episodes because I'm still kind of figuring them out. We'll get to this week's episode with the incredible Dr. Robin Chutkin in a moment, but I have another exciting thing to tell you, so bear with me. The registration for the 2022 Eat More Plants Challenge is now officially open. If you've joined us in the past, you know what a blast this is. So hit up the link in the show notes and sign up ASAP and then come back to the episode. But if you've never taken part before, the Eat More Plants Challenge is my way of creating a supportive community to help you explore eating a more plant-based diet. It is a non-diet, positive nutrition challenge with zero restrictions and zero elimination diets. So what does that actually mean? What are we actually going to do for four weeks? Well, we're going to take part in four weeks of doable weekly challenges that build one on top of the other to help you experience how good eating more plants can make you feel. If you want a cookie, you'll have a cookie. You going on vacation? No worries because the challenges are easy enough to travel with you. Yes, it's a four-week challenge, but my intention with this challenge is to help you build small, doable practices that you can keep with you all year long. You'll receive a 50-page PDF with four weeks of simple meal plans. You'll get a weekly email to help keep you motivated, a weekly hour-long Q&A call with me, a couple of surprise guests, and an incredible community of your new Planty BFFs completely off of social media. We used to run this on Facebook and I heard you loud and clear. So I found an incredible non-social media community for us all to gather in. And the best part, it is just $10. That's right, 10 bucks. Why? So that as many people as possible can have access to safe and evidence-informed nutrition support. It's 10 bucks. What have you got to lose? Okay, so now for this week's episode. I am thrilled to be talking to one of my biggest gut heroes, Dr. Robin Chutkin. Dr. Chutkin is an integrative gastroenterologist and the author of Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. Educated at Yale and Columbia, she's on faculty at Georgetown Hospital and the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness and GutBliss.com. Her expertise includes the microbiome, autoimmune diseases, and gut disorders in women. An avid, but she admits not so flexible yogi, runner, and squash player, she's a passionate advocate for more dirt, sweat, and of course, vegetables. In this episode, we cover what an integrative approach to gut health actually looks like. Spoiler alert, it means using nutrition, movement, and stress management in addition to appropriate medications instead of shunning one for the other. We talk about what you need to make good poops, Dr. Chutkin's opinion on probiotics and the role of the microbiome in health, including how it impacts your immune system and the whole rest of your body. This episode is packed with so much good stuff. So let's dive in. 
Okay, so I am so very excited to talk to you, Dr. Chetkin. You know, we've sort of mentioned offline how your work has been really influential to my own nutritional practice. And so it's really exciting to get to, if not see you in the flesh, but see you via the Zoom. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I'm grateful for all the work you're doing out there with helping people who have these complex, chronic digestive problems and helping them understand the role of food and food as medicine. So thank you for all that you do. I have to start right out of the gate because I was peeping on your Twitter feed and (laughs) you shared a little thread about poop where you almost likened the quality of a bowel movement to the appraisal of a diamond. So can you walk us through like what a good poop should look and feel like? Absolutely. And it really, it kind of is a treasure, right? And I'll say that people are always talking about detoxification and so on. And you know that feeling when you have like a glorious poo, like just thick and the right color and the right consistency, and you do feel detoxified. So I always tell people like, you don't need to go to Canyon Ranch or Miraval. You just need to start eating more fiber and you can have the spa right there in your bathroom. But really I'm talking about the four C, so color, ideally a nice chocolatey brown color. And I I hope you're your audience isn't too put off by this because we are literally going right into it. But my, one of my goals is to get, you know, bowel movements and stool out of the veritable closet, the water closet. So I'm glad we're diving right in. So we think about color and we want that nice chocolatey brown color, a stool that's too light, what we call an acolic stool, can be a sign of problems with the bile ducts, clogged bile ducts, even serious things like liver cancer. So you want to make sure that enough of the bile pigment is getting into the stool. That's a sign of a healthy liver, gallbladder, bile ducts. So a nice chocolatey brown color, not too light. We also don't want too dark. A very dark stool can sometimes be a sign that there's old blood from higher up in the gastrointestinal tract that's mixed in. So the color is important, the clarity. And by that, I mean, you ideally actually, when you think of, I guess when you're thinking about gems, you think you don't want cloudiness, but when you it comes to stool, you actually want to see little bits of plant material in it. And people will often say, oh, I'm seeing little bits of carrot or celery. And I'm like, no, no, that's fine. I mean, you don't want to see whole chunks of food that might suggest that things are moving through too quickly, that you're having a motility issue and fast motility, but definitely seeing little bits of undigested or partially or not completely digested plant matter is a sign that you're eating lots of it. If you're eating a meat and potatoes diet, you're probably not going to see any of that. So when you think about those fibrous foods, part of the reason that they're so good for us is because they're not really there to feed us. They're there to feed our gut bacteria. And so when we think about indigestible plant fiber, it doesn't get completely broken down by us in terms of our digestive enzymes and so on. It floats down into the colon where it gets fermented by gut bacteria to produce this super essential short chain fatty acids. So it's very natural that some of that remains in the stool. In fact, I always do, I call it the poor woman's motility test, right? Tell my patient, go home, eat a couple pieces of corn on the cob. Tell me when you see the corn on the cob in your stool. And that's how you know your transit time. Are you seeing it the next morning? Are you seeing it a day later? Are you seeing it two days later? So we know that the corn kernels have a lot of cellulose in them, which isn't completely broken down. So in terms of clarity, you don't want stool that's too clear. You actually want to be able to see some of these 
poorly digested vegetable particles. It's completely normal. So we did color, we did clarity, cut. (laughs) And by cut, I mean that ideally you want to sort of get the whole log in the bowl. You don't want a, a colon that's sometimes what we call a spastic colon can contract and sort of cut off the stool. And then you end up with a bunch of little logs as opposed to one nice log. So we have color cut clarity. I think carrot would be the last one. I don't remember what I used for that one, but the idea, I mean, it was a little bit tongue in cheek, but the idea also is to suggest that, you know, people think of stool as something dirty and it's, you know, not to be seen, not to be smelled, not to be spoken of. And I really want to change the way people think about that and realize that, your stool is one of the best indicators of your digestive health and to some extent your overall health. And it is really something that is so informative. And it literally, Desiree, as you know, can be a treasure when we think about stool transplants for conditions like Clostridium difficile. Stool these days can be life-saving, even though, you know, I don't recommend that people go around ingesting their poor anybody else's on a, on a regular basis. But really just thinking about, just changing the way we think about it, that this is something that when we're doing everything right, so when we're doing most things right, particularly when we're eating well, that what comes out really is something that can be incredibly useful as a little bit of a window into what's going on in your digestive tract. You know, and that's so important to us here at the All Sorts Podcast. We want to sort of bust that stigma that this is somehow dirty. This is a normal healthy function of the human body and we need to get comfortable with it and need to get comfortable with paying attention to it and letting us teach us like where our body is at. And I love that you mentioned the idea of hard to digest because I think there's a lot, particularly in wellness language, this is hard to digest, therefore it's not good for your system. And there's this huge misconception that because certain plant foods, legumes, for example, are hard to digest, that means they're inherently bad. But it is that your microbiome needs the very substances that are hard to digest. Without without them, your microbiome wouldn't live another day. Absolutely. And there's, I really try to distinguish for my patients between good gas and bad gas. You know, good gas is you eat a bunch of Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, legumes, and you have gas. Bad gas is Every time you eat a big bowl of ice cream, you're lactose intolerant, you get that gas. That's your body saying, yeah, guess what? I don't have the enzyme to digest that versus the other kind of gas where it's a natural byproduct of the fermentation. And, you know, you mentioned, so in terms of the the language that you're, you're so right about that. And patients will say to me, you know, oh, I can't digest that. And I'm like, well, what do you, what do you mean by you can't digest it? And I remind them that the third most common ingredient in breast milk is something called an HMO, not the medical kind, but human milk oligosaccharides. And human milk oligosaccharides are completely indigestible by babies. And why would the third most common ingredient in breast milk be something that the baby can't even digest? And that's because it's not there to feed the baby. It's there to feed the baby's bacteria, the bifidobacteria, the lactobacillus. And so the HMOs in breast milk feed the baby's burgeoning microbiome army and make the microbes able, for example, to repel staph on the mother's nipples. So it's actually arming them. And so it's the same thing. There's so many things that we get from food and legumes are a great example that are really there to make us healthier and stronger by sort of building our microbiome army. And so, you know, getting people to understand that 
you know, when we talk about digestion and maldigestion, they're really different forms of that. And having gas after you eat a big bowl of beans is very different from somebody who has pancreatic insufficiency, for example, who notices like an oily sheen on their stool and is having oily diarrhea every time they eat something containing fat. So yeah, thanks for thanks for making that point. Let's talk a little bit more about the microbiome because it is very much like an on-trend, very hot topic in wellness. What actually is the microbiome for people who aren't sure of it? Yeah, it's sort of amazing that as a medical community too, we kind of missed this whole thing for so many years, right? Oh yeah, those guys that are actually animating us and making us alive. So the microbiome, the definition really, it's referring to all the organisms, bacteria, but also viruses, fungal organisms, one cell protozoa organisms, archaea. So all the organisms that live in and on our bodies, mostly in our GI tract. You can't see them because they're microscopic, but if you scraped up all the microbes, with the microbiome itself would weigh about four pounds. So we're talking about a lot of microbes. How many? More than a hundred trillion and really thousands of different species that we know of. We're literally discovering new species of microbes literally every year. So we're talking about, to put it in context, in one drop of fluid in your colon alone, you have about a billion bacteria in literally a drop of fluid. And we have about 23,000 human genes. We have 3.3 million microbial genes. We are vastly outnumbered by our microbes, about 10 to 1 in terms of cells. So lots of people pointed out we're actually more microbe than we are human. And I have a slide where I show a beehive with all the bees. And I'm like, you know, we are animated by our microbes the same way the hive is just an empty hive, but the honey, for the honey to get produced, we need the bees. And it's the same thing. So when you think about like the obvious things, right? Digesting food, sure. You can, you know, most people are like, yeah, I guess microbes are involved, but synthesizing vitamins. You think about a vitamin like vitamin K and the fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. In the hospital, when somebody's been on antibiotics for a while, their blood stops clotting. And usually the phlebotomists who are drawing the blood will say, hey, so-and-so needs some vitamin K. Why? Because a broad spectrum antibiotic you've been given has killed off so much of your gut bacteria that now you're not making vitamin K because the microbiome and gut bacteria are an important co-producers of vitamin K, you can't make it without bacteria. So they synthesize vitamins. They help to clear toxins from our body. They produce hormones. They produce a lot of the neurotransmitters, serotonin, et cetera, produced by gut bacteria. They train the immune system, how to recognize friend from foe and when to respond and when to back off and how not to respond too much. This sort of dreaded cytokine storm that we've all become familiar with. So the training of the immune system is a really important function of gut bacteria. And when you look at a sort of image of where your immune system is, most of it is in your gut. And it's separated from those trillions of gut bacteria by a lining that is literally one cell thick. So you have one cell separating the trillions of microbes on one side and all the immune processes, all the production of antibodies, the plasma cells, et cetera, on the other. So it's really this hand in glove relationship. And without the microbiome, there is no immune system. And our microbes also are very involved in turning genes on and off. So people think of 
our genes as being more static, right? Like you're just, you know, you kind of get dealt a bad hand or a good hand, but the truth is genes get inactivated and turned on and off all the time. And our microbes are very, very much involved in switching those things on and off. And that's how they are in large part determinants of whether disease gets expressed or not. So you may be genetically susceptible to something and be genetically predisposed, but whether the disease actually develops is in large part due to what's going on microbially. And we see that with identical twins, et cetera. And I'm sure you see it in your work dealing with people with chronic digestive problems. And, you know, can we talk a little bit about, because you've just sort of laid the foundation here that, you know, our, our microbiome is part of, you know, the environmental input when it comes to chronic disease. And we're seeing, you know, I just saw some research published that suggested that celiac disease is actually increasing roughly 7% every single year. And we know that, you know, since 1950, our genes haven't changed that much since 1950. Like we just, we don't evolve that rapidly as much as we like to think we're far more evolved. We're not. So how is the microbiome and the changes in the microbiome impacting our susceptibility to celiac disease or irritable bowel syndrome, or you know, what is your specialty, the inflammatory bowel diseases? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because I think for people to really understand this, and we are seeing an epidemic of what we like to refer to as these modern plagues, autoimmune diseases. And celiac is a great example because there's a dietary component too, and we'll circle back to it. But we currently are at more than a hundred different autoimmune diseases. And they, in the US, they affect one in four people. So that's a quarter of the population. And most people have a few. So if you don't have one yourself, you probably know somebody who has them, who has one, and they probably have, maybe they have Hashimoto's, but they also have eczema, and they also have Raynaud's or they have rheumatoid arthritis, but they also have psoriasis. And they, in my world of inflammatory bowel disease, my Crohn's and ulcerative colitis patients often have two or three additional autoimmune diseases. So why are we seeing literally this epidemic? Most of these diseases are really diseases of the last hundred years. I mean, they may have been around beyond that, but really in very with a very limited prevalence. So when you sort of ask, like, why are we seeing that? There's an epidemiologist at the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, David Strawn, and he was tasked in the 1950s by the British government with investigating why they were seeing skyrocketing rates of eczema and hay fever. So essentially eczema and asthma, two quintessential autoimmune diseases in the 1950s in London. And he embarked on a 22-year study of over 17,000 people from birth to adulthood. And he found two very startling and completely sort of counterintuitive things. And think about what was happening in the 1950s in London, sort of post-industrial England. So everybody had moved from the farm to the factory at that point. I have a really cool video of the Olympics opening ceremony when it was in England a few years ago. It's this video of them. They had had this pastoral scene with all this grass. And then you see all these people come out and they roll up the grass and you see these chimneys, these big smokestacks coming up. That's literally what happened. Like people, you know, the grass went away and the smokestacks came up. And when that happened, you know, the 101 different autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, MS, Crohn's, colitis, eczema, psoriasis, all of this stuff started to dramatically increase. So David Strawn embarks on this 21, 22 year study of 17,000 babies. And when they reach adulthood, again, he's an epidemiologist. He finds two things. The first 
is that these autoimmune diseases are very rare in households where there are a lot of family members living. So, you know, if you think back to 1950s London, things are pretty crowded. You know, it's a growing city. It's often 10, you know, a family with eight kids, maybe a couple cousins. There's one bathroom. The British are not known for their, <laughs> their lavatory situations. It's, you know, you come to houses in America and you have four bedrooms and five bathrooms. In England, it's five bedrooms and one bathroom in a lot of these houses. So he found that in households where there were lots of kids and lots of kids sneezing on each other and giving each other all these different, you know, coughs and colds. Those kids who grew up in those households had almost no autoimmune diseases. So that was the first thing that was really again, counterintuitive, because you're like, well, if all there are all these germs going around, these kids should be sicker. They were sicker in the moment with these childhood coughs and colds, but they were healthy as adults. So that's number one. The second thing is that more affluent households where there was a lot more bathing and washing had the highest rates. Now, to be clear, I'm not equating affluence with hygiene today, but back then, more than 50 years ago, that was the case. Richer families had more bathrooms. There was more washing and bathing. Poorer families had very limited access, and maybe you're getting a bath every couple of weeks. But the more, the cleaner they were with all the washing and the sanitizing, the higher the rates of autoimmune disease. So this turned everything that the medical establishment thought they knew about cleanliness and hygiene and disease on its head. And it was like, all of a sudden, wait a second, it's better to be dirty. <laughs> it's like not good to be clean, really. And if you look at a map of the world today, Desiree, you still see that same distribution. So if you look at more developed countries like North America, Western Europe, Australia, you see high rates of autoimmune disease. And if you look at less developed countries, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, the Caribbean where I'm from, you see much lower rates. But now we're starting to see something different because as countries become more industrialized, we are starting to see high rates of autoimmune disease. And a great example is at Georgetown, where I'm on faculty, when I first arrived in 1997, we had a wonderful GI fellow from Saudi Arabia named Hisham al Salut. And Hisham would sometimes come to my inflammatory bowel disease clinic. And he said to me one day, he was like, you know, no offense, Dr. Chakam, like, you're nice. I like hanging out with you. Your patients are great. But this is kind of a waste of time for me because we don't really have inflammatory bowel disease in Saudi Arabia. So this is in 1997. Well, fast forward about a decade ago, and I saw him at a meeting and he's like, guess what? We now have a Crohn's clinic wow. in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. So as countries become, we see the same thing in India. And it's a combination of things. So, you know, it's the McDonald's effect for sure, right? It's, you know, fast food and all of that. It is widespread sanitation, chlorination of the water. And again, many of these things are good things. I'm really glad that I don't have to worry about getting cholera every time I turn on my tap. But, you know, these things come at a cost and it's antibiotic use. So if we look at a country like India, the U.S. is number one per capita, this is not something to be proud of for being number one, but we are number one per capita for antibiotic use. But India has the largest amount of antibiotic use in the world. And in a lot of developing countries, the antibiotics are much more accessible, right? You can get things over the counter without a prescription, et cetera. So as we look at these countries, as they become more industrialized, people start to eat a lot more animal protein and fat because they can afford it. There's widespread kind of super sanitization. There's widespread use of antibiotics. There's widespread use of acid blocking drugs, other medications. And, you know, unfortunately, the tail end of that is more autoimmune disease. 
It's more of the, we've swung, the pendulum has swung worldwide from communicable diseases like tuberculosis and cholera and, you know, COVID as the number one killer of people. And it's actually non-communicable diseases like diabetes and obesity and heart disease that are now killing more people worldwide. So that's really reflected in some of these numbers. So the map is changing a little bit because some of the countries that were less developed are becoming more industrialized. And as that happens, you start to see the rates of these diseases increasing. So when I, you know, sometimes I talk to friends or patients in my practice who are parents and they'll tell me, oh, you know, the dermatologist put my kid on doxycycline for acne. And I literally, like, I go crazy when I hear that. I'm like, so you realize that you're dramatically putting your kid at risk for an autoimmune disease with this. Like, what are these dermatologists thinking? Have they not read the memo? The microbiome is really important to health. So, so many of our medical practices, and I can't just shout out, you know, kind of call out the dermatologist because in my field, it's hard to walk out of a gastroenterologist's office without a prescription for Nexium, Prevacid, Prilosec, you know, some acid blocker. And those drugs are also really disruptive to the microbiome. But to circle back to the autoimmune thing, there was an article published in the journal Gut in 2014. And, and honestly, Desiree, part of my motivation for writing my second book, The Microbiome Solution, I saw that article and I was like, okay, people have to, you know, I got to tell people about this because what the article showed was they looked at about, I think it was 7,023 kids with Crohn's and they looked at risk factors for developing the disease. And they found that antibiotic use was the most strongly correlated, particularly early in life in those first thousand days of life when the microbiome is really forming. And the two antibiotics that were the most strongly correlated, a fluoroquinolone, Cipro, and metronidazole, which you may know as Flagyl, those two antibiotics were actually the common antibiotics we use to treat flare-ups of these diseases. So the very drugs we're using to treat the diseases are actually implicated in causing the disease. And it was the same history that I was hearing from so many of my patients with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis were coming in and saying, yeah, I was, you know, a C-section baby. I wasn't nursed and I had tons of antibiotics as a kid. And then lo and behold, you know, after my 17th birthday, I started having blood in my stool and cramping and I got diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. So I just feel like people and physicians included are not putting you know, following those breadcrumbs backwards and connecting the dots to really see that in our well-meaning attempts to treat somebody's sinus infection, we are creating long-term chronic disease for sure. And I, you know, as a dietitian who, you know, for many years has been here in the corner going, nutrition matters, we can do things with food and really having to make the case for nutrition as part of the treatment modality for, you know, so many of these conditions. It's so exciting to me to know that gastroenterologists like you exist. And one of the things, you know, in my research for this podcast, one of the things that you said, I think on the Sakara Life podcast that really resonated with me is that you said that medicine often asks what, but not why. And I think the why is so powerful in really changing the way that we practice with people who have chronic disease. Can you explain a little bit more about that for our listeners? Sure. Yeah. I mean, in medical school, and listen, I did my gastroenterology training at Mount Sinai Hospital where doctors Crohn, Oppenheimer, and Ginsburg described Crohn's disease. So if there was ever a place to talk about, you know, this disease, it was, it was an incredible place to do my gastroenterology training. 
And I went to med school and did my residency at Columbia, just sort of uptown in New York, both incredible institutions. But again, the focus is on diagnosing. So is this Crohn's? Is it ulcerative colitis? Is it diverticulosis? What is it? And then how are we going to treat it, which is generally pharmaceutically or surgically? So there really was no, and again, I don't blame this on the institutions. This is really the time. I finished medical school in 1991. So, you know, it's just 30 years ago. And I don't think the word microbiome was ever uttered throughout my entire medical training, right? And so there was just a lack of awareness. I mean, people knew what it was, but it was sort of more a scientific concept than it was really a clinically validated idea that this stuff matters. And we were singularly focused on eradicating germs, right? Whether it's in the operating room or so the idea that germs are good for you just really had not percolated through the medical community. And so it really was about, you know, pharmaceutically conquering these diseases. And, you know, we generally don't talk about cure in the IBD world. We talk about remission, but long-term remission is essentially cure. That's what if somebody's disease goes into remission and it never rears its head again, you know, I think it's sort of a semantic issue, what you call that, but it was all about suppressing disease. And when we think about suppressing disease and the pharmaceutical drugs that we use to suppress disease in the autoimmune world, we're talking about immune suppressing drugs. And this pandemic, I think, has really shone a light on that because this is just the mechanics of how immune suppression works. As you suppress the immune system, an autoimmune disease that is a disease that is basically an immune system that's too active. So in the case of inflammatory bowel disease, it's the immune system reacting to the normal gut flora and creating ulcers and bleeding and problems, inflammation in the GI tract, because it's it's reacting to the normal gut flora. In the case of the joints, it's causing destruction of the joints with rheumatoid arthritis. With the skin, it's the same thing. So it's your body essentially attacking itself because the immune system is too active. So it makes perfect sense when you think about it that way, that the way you would treat that would be by suppressing the immune system, right? Let's quiet this immune system down, whether that's with steroids or with biologics, et cetera. And doing that often helps these diseases tremendously. And so for people who have really been suffering, this can be life-changing. Like all of a sudden now they're not having 20 bloody bowel movements or they're not in, you know, in the case of rheumatoid arthritis, they're not in sort of crippling pain and they can, they're functional. So it can be just tremendously beneficial. But the flip side of that is with that immune suppression comes an increased risk of infection, particularly viral and fungal infections, because that's the arm of the immune system that's most affected, and an increased risk of cancer, because part of the immune system's job, as you know, is to do cancer surveillance, to find cells that are, that are a little off in their reproduction and to get rid of them before they can continue to reproduce out of control, and lo and behold, you have a tumor. So your cancer surveillance as an internal threat when you're immunosuppressed is not functioning properly. So you're at increased risk of cancer. And in terms of external threats, it's basically infection, particularly viral and fungal, as well as bacterial. So that's with immune suppression. If you have an overreactive immune system, you know, people often talk about boosting their immune system. And, you know, that's the language in the wellness world, right? Take this supplement to boost your immune system. Well, a boosted immune system in terms of internal threat is autoimmune disease. It's overreactive. And in terms of external threats, it's allergies, it's food allergies, it's severe anaphylactic reactions to wasp and bee stings, et cetera. So as I like to tell people, you want the Goldilocks immune system, right? You want it just right. And you really get that through diet because I, I mentioned earlier 
in digestible plant fiber and bacteria fermenting that to short-chain fatty acids like butyric acid and propionic acid. And those short-chain fatty acids are critically important in modulating the immune system, in making sure that you have a robust enough response to clear the virus or the bacteria, but not so robust that you end up damaging your own tissue and ending up with acute respiratory distress syndrome or some other overblown immune response. And you can't hack that. You know, you either have it or you don't have it. And if you don't have it, you can cultivate it. So I, I joke sometimes in my office and patients would come from far away to see me and, you know, the patient has seen six other doctors and they're like, there's all this buildup, like, oh, you're going to be the one to cure me. And then I'm sitting there going, okay, how am I going to make eat more vegetables sound sexy and worth the trip, right? Like you came all the way from New Mexico and you came for the cure. And I'm going to sit here and tell you to eat more vegetables. And, you know, how am I going to phrase it in a way so that this patient doesn't leave really disappointed? And, you know, to be clear, it's more than that, right? Sometimes people, they're microbial disruptors that people are, you know, things that disrupt the microbiome that people are doing that they may not be aware of, et cetera. But a lot of the time, Desiree, and I mean, you know this in your work, that's what it boils down to, right? And, and you know, sometimes it's sort of comical because I'm literally like, how can I say this in a way that sounds super scientific? I feel like the microbiome is our greatest gift because eat more vegetables, eat more fiber is without a doubt the most boring nutritional advice you could ever give someone. But now when it comes to the microbiome, yeah. now you're eating what I often call Big Macs, the microbe accessible carbohydrates. So it's like, yes. you need a different kind of Big Mac in your life. You know, oh, I love kale, that. Uh, yeah. Kale, the lentils. I love the Big Macs. I'm going to use that. How do you actually approach that with someone? Because we see this all the time in our practice, people with ulcerative colitis, Crohn's who are on their biologics still having upwards of a dozen yeah. bowel movements a day. And our goal is always to move them towards a more plant-centered diet. And the conversation we always have to have with them is that they consume a lot of low residue foods. So a lot of mm -hmm. white bread, a lot of white rice, you know, a lot of chicken, things that are often recommended by their gastroenterologist. Almost always. Yeah because they don't feel irritating in the moment. And so how do you propose to clients to move from that diet that feels good when they eat it, but is potentially perpetuating the very inflammation that causes these reactions in the first place? Yeah, it's a real conundrum. And, you know, the idea of an anti-inflammatory diet really had not, has not seeped into the gastroenterology world. So as you said, it is, you eat the low residue foods, what I call the wonder bread diet that all these patients get put on and they feel fine. But of course that continues to drive the inflammation, right? That's not creating a healthy microbiome. That's not creating a healthy gut. And so over time, the drugs, the biologics eventually stop working for most people. So it is, it's sort of like, you know, it, it's almost like exercise for some people, right? Like when you're doing it, I, I'm actually running a, I used to run a lot of marathons and I'm not running many full marathons, but still do a fair amount of half. So my husband and I are doing the Philadelphia half marathon day after tomorrow. And I'm already like, oh, it's going to be cold. I think it's a high of 48 that day. My husband told me it's going to be 31 in the morning. My plantar fasciitis is bothering me. I've got, I'm kind of dreading it, but I'm just thinking ahead to how good I'm going to feel after. I'm like, I'm going to feel so amazing after my 13.1 miles. So it's a little bit that way sometimes with the plants, right? They don't necessarily feel good in the moment, but over time they are 
probably the biggest opportunity to heal inflammation in the gut. And so, you know, because I frequently tell people, pay attention to the feedback your gut gives you, they're like, well, you told me to pay attention and I feel terrible when I eat this stuff. And so there's a whole art to gradually. And I mean, you know, like how you slowly introduce stuff, how you do more cooked vegetables and raw in the beginning. I have people do a lot of blending and do green smoothies, how you build up to tolerating that stuff. And then there's a tipping point where the inflammation starts to heal, they start to feel really good and then they want to eat more of it. But I think in the beginning, it's really just them trusting you because what we're telling them is anathema to what they've been told. It's the complete opposite. They've been told, don't eat those foods. Usually, I mean, for me, the people who are coming to see me are coming because that stuff generally hasn't worked or they want to get off it. So I think they are open to the idea and they're actually looking for something different. A lot of them have been doing this specific carbohydrate diet, but they've been doing it in a more paleo way, right? They've been doing bake. So they're like, oh, I'm not eating any gluten. I'm not eating any refined sugar, but they're eating bacon eggs for breakfast, chicken for lunch, steak for dinner with two broccoli florets. And it's like that, that is not going to get you to the finish line. So we actually did a study in 2014. We looked at 12 patients with inflammatory bowel disease. I think it was nine ulcerative colitis, three Crohn's. These were patients with pretty serious autoimmune disease. About half of them had had previous surgery, bowel resections. And we just did it retrospectively because these were patients who came to us already on the specific carbohydrate diet. We found that the average time to noticing a difference with their symptoms was about 38 days. So a little over a month, seven out of the 12 patients were able to stop or reduce medication. So over 50%, which was pretty dramatic. And we did colonoscopy in eight out of the 12, some mucosal healing completely in six out of the eight, which, you know, when you look at the numbers are, when we've looked at our response rate for attaining remission with food as medicine, we're at about 78, 80%. The best biologic is barely at 50%, you know, 47, 48% for remission response a little bit higher. And then you think, okay, and you could get cancer or a severe, maybe even fatal infection versus, okay, you might have a little more gas in the beginning, but you know, what's the, what's the worst thing that can happen by changing your diet and eating really healthily? So the numbers are, you know, very clear for us, but sometimes when I deal with, you know, some of my GI colleagues who are all mostly lovely, well-meaning people, it's like I'm speaking a foreign language. It's so foreign to them, the idea that what you eat can affect what's going on in your GI tract. And, and when you think about it, Desiree, just intuitively, how could it not? How could it not make a difference? The idea that when you have an inflamed GI tract that you could just put, you know, soda and Cheetos in there and it's not going to make a difference for, you know, versus kale and Brussels sprouts. So the idea that food doesn't matter and you know, I think when you go a little deeper, because I've spent years pondering this exact same question, like, why don't they care? And it's not that they don't care. They don't know. But first of all, we really have to, I think we have to have eyes wide open, right? And acknowledge that medicine, particularly my field of gastroenterology, is a field where people make, you know, large amounts of money in short amounts of time from doing procedures. So a colonoscopy is going to take you 15 minutes. And if you own the endoscopy suite and you own the sedation and you own the pathology, so you're getting a facility fee, a physician fee, a pathology fee, an anesthesia fee, you're, you're making yourself a pretty penny in a short period of time versus you're going to sit down for an hour and start to talk to people about fiber and short chain fatty acids and, 
you know, it is just from a basic common sense approach. It gastroenterologists are not going to put down their scopes and start talking to patients about fiber intake. But it doesn't have to be the gastroenterologist. The gastroenterologist can do what they do really well, which is scope patients. And for those who need biologics, continue to prescribe. But all the rest of us, and I mean, I say us, but I'm a gastroenterologist too. But, you know, there, there are other people, there are people like you, like, you know, registered dietitians and integrative nutritionists and all kinds of people and health coaches for that matter, who, you know, can really spread the word in a different way and in a way that's more hands-on and and more attainable and accessible in some ways. And this realization is part of, for me, what led me to just very recently, last week, a big change in my practice where we've gone virtual with instead of seeing patients one by one in person, we're trying to do more scalable disease specific kind of group-based education. And one of the first courses that we're launching in the new year is called drug-free IBD, remission without immunosuppression. And it's not completely drug-free, right? There are many pharmaceuticals that I prescribe that I think are very safe, but non-immunosuppression is really important, particularly now. I mean, if there's ever been a time to think about how not to suppress your immune system because you need it to keep you alive and to protect you. It's now during a pandemic, during a viral pandemic. So, you know, I'm very proud of the work that we've been doing in the practice for the last six, since 2004. So the last almost 17 years, but it was really important to me with this pandemic to figure out a way to democratize access and to be able to share this information with more people beyond just people coming to DC and seeing me individually in my office. So we're excited about this. We're doing a lot of other things. I'm doing a free office hours every Tuesday at noon where it's a different topic. And I chat for about 10 or 15 minutes and then people ask questions. So, you know, how can we, and it's like what you're doing here with the all sorts podcast, right? How can you take what you know, which is valuable and share it and share it in a way that's not salesy. I mean, yes, I need to make a living, but not, you know, I'm not selling people supplements or cures or anything. I'm just sharing really good common sense, clinically validated and scientifically backed information that I hope will help somebody maybe get their disease better without a drug or get off a drug that may be potentially problematic down the road, or actually the opposite sometimes make them feel more comfortable about their decision to be on a biologic because they really need it. Because I will be the first one to tell people, I'm glad these drugs exist, but what I'm interested in is judicious prescribing and judicious use. So sometimes that conversation is, look, I know you want to really embark on a food as medicine approach and get off these drugs, but based on what I'm seeing in your colon, based on your history, based on your current symptoms, I think you actually need this drug right now. So why don't we commit to being on it for a year? keep working on the diet and let's reassess in nine months or 12 months and see. And if your disease activity is significantly lower, then that might be a good time to try and come off, but not right now. And, and I think you really need that balanced approach, right? If you have somebody who's like constantly selling you some supplement cure, that should really, you know, you should have one eyebrow raise, like really, because sometimes you need the conventional stuff. And, and I think it, that's a really important part of the narrative for patients is that there's no wrong or right way necessarily. There's just the, the road that's going to be the right road for you right now. And that can change and, you know, you can change course. You know, and I think that is such an important point to close on because 
I think we get into this war of, you know, diet only, no medications or diet doesn't do anything. These medications are most important. And so for people to have access to a physician like yourself who understands not only the validity, but necessity of tackling nutrition because you get at the whys, but then also having these medications at your disposal because they are miracles. They, they keep people yeah. from losing more of their bowel. They, you know, they keep people feeling better. So it is, it's not an either, or it's a both. And, and I really respect that. So we always close every episode of the all sorts podcast with five rapid fire questions that our guests Ooh. do not know ahead of time. Yikes. I promise they're super softballs. <laughs> <laughs> so the first is you are an incredibly busy physician, parent. You've written multiple books. You have your own practice. Are you a takeout person or a home cook? A little bit of both, but more home cook. Yeah. I'll say there's definitely been a little more takeout during the pandemic, surprisingly, because we've all been home more, but also maybe feeling like, yeah, let's watch a show instead of cooking. So primarily home cook, I'd say probably 80, 20, 90, 10. Amazing. What's your favorite thing to cook? Ooh, anything curry. My dad's from India. And in fact, my husband jokes when he met me that I seem to only could make jerk chicken or curry something. And so still <laughs> my favorite thing would be curry shrimp actually to make. And I put in a lot of different vegetables, leeks and cabbage and stuff in it, but that'd probably be my favorite. Amazing. What's the best non-work thing you've read lately? Atomic Habits. James Clare. Did you read that one? That one is on, I have skimmed it. Yeah. That one is on my to-read list. Everyone who has ever read it says it's incredible. Oh, so good. <laughs> and the sad thing is I have the same publishing team as James Clare and Brene Brown who are selling millions of books. It's really, I mean, I'm really happy for them and they're, my team is amazing at Penguin Random House, but you know, I hear like, oh, Brene Brown's book debuted as the number one book in the world. <laughs> some crazy stuff like that. So nonfiction would be James Clare Atomic Habits. And then fiction would be The Vanishing Half. Probably my favorite book of last year. Oh, that was yay. remarkable. It was yeah. so good. If you haven't read it, we'll put everything in the show notes. That is a fantastic book if you're into novels. What's your take on probiotics? Probiotics are sort of like vitamins. So you heard the heavy sigh in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> probiotics are a little bit like vitamins in the sense that there's not really good evidence that the average healthy person benefits from taking a vitamin or benefits from taking a probiotic. There are specific circumstances. So in the case of vitamins, for example, my patients with Crohn's disease often have B12 deficiency because the part of the intestine, the ileum where B12 is reabsorbed has been removed or it's inflamed. So they need B12. They often have vitamin D deficiencies, et cetera. So they have iron deficiencies if they're bleeding. So looking at those particular deficiencies and repleting whatever's missing is a very good idea. In terms of probiotics, there are particular circumstances like traveler's diarrhea. There's a high dose probiotic that's actually considered a medical food that's used for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, particularly for something called pouchitis, where the colon has been removed and there can be inflammation in the remaining segment. So there are specific instances and specific remedies. There's a very good study from Italy looking at a very, very high dose probiotic formulation. I think it was eight packets a day of 900 billion each. So this is, you know, wait, this is not something you could buy at Whole Foods. And they found that the patients who received this had lower rates of requiring a ventilator, lower rates of ICU admission, lower rates of death. And this is, you know, published data. 
So they can be helpful in particular instances, but just, you know, going to the grocery store, the whole food store and taking a probiotic, there's no evidence that that's actually doing anything. There's a lot of evidence that eating fermented foods, going to the farmer's market and eating some sauerkraut or kimchi is actually doing a lot. Or in fact, even eating an apple that was grown in soil, because where do we get our microbes after we get them from our mothers? We get them from the soil. So eating food that was grown in microbially rich soil, ideally biodynamically farmed where the animals are, you know, pooing. We started with poo and we'll end with poo where the animals are, you know, pooing on the plants. And that is really increasing the microbial content. The fertilizing, I guess it's a polite way to say it, is even more robust. So there's way more evidence for eating that kind of food to enhance your microbiome than there is for taking a pill. But again, it is, you know, the commercial pressure. This is a trillion dollar industry. And people want to believe that, that they can, you know, have their Doritos and just take this pill and somehow everything is going to be okay. And the truth is, it's not. It's not. You absolutely have to pay attention to what you're eating. And again, a probiotic in particular settings, a probiotic where there is scientific data behind it. And so scientific data does not mean something on the website saying, oh, you know, 90% of people who took this thought they look younger, an actual published scientific study on bias. It's really important to look into that before, you know, you take things is what I tell people and make sure that this is scientifically backed and it's not marketing masquerading as research. So I do, I mean, in my practice, I prescribe, again, a prescription strength of a high-dose probiotic for my IBD patients and in other particular circumstances. But I don't recommend that the average person just go and, you know, pick up a probiotic and take it because I don't think it's doing anything. And sometimes it can kind of take the focus off what can move the needle, which is the food. You talk about living dirty for your microbiome. How do you live dirty? (laughs) (laughs) I'm in my my yoga pants. We'll see if you can see because I haven't... I haven't bathed yet since my workout. So I try to just try to put on like a loose top. I try to limit the, the washing. This is where, this is my scenery out my window. And if you can see that. Beautiful. beautiful. For people who are listening to this, it's a beautiful forest. <laughs> I'm very lucky to live right on the edge of Rock Creek Park in Washington, DC. So the main way is by trying to get out in nature and rewild. And so I, I try and do that. Today's a beautiful day. and. I'd mentioned I have a call after this and I'm going to slip out before I have to do something else this afternoon and go for a walk in the woods. I sum it up really three words, dirt, sweat, veg. So I try and get outside in the woods and try and get dirty myself. (laughs) Typically, if you can combine dirt and sweat, that's really good. So get outside, get sweaty, some sort of exercise, whether it's hiking in the woods, playing tennis with my 86-year-old father, whatever it is. And then the veg. I, I try and eat some vegetables. I hadn't had much this morning and I, I whipped up a green smoothie. Wasn't my best tasting one because I find it really hard to make it taste good without lemon. And I didn't have any lemons today. But you know, I'll just try and quickly get some down. I'm not as good a natural vegetable eater as my husband, for example, who probably eats two or three salads a day. So sometimes I end up just blending mine and, and drinking it as a quickie. But for me, those dirt, sweat, veg, that is sort of like the holy grail, if you will, for, and I I don't worry about anything too much else. I made up a longer list that I'll tell you about really quickly because it was 10 things. And I was like, what are the top 10 things that I really need to keep me healthy and feeling good? So it was sleep, 
minimally eight hours a day, which I failed dismally at frequently, but so it was sleep ideally eight hours a day. It was get sweaty, get like an hour of exercise, get outside for at least an hour. It was meditate for 15 minutes. It was be grateful, like however you manifest that, but just, you know, take a moment to be grateful. It was eat a salad, drink a green smoothie, and then minimal alcohol, sugar, and gluten. And that was, I, you know, I just sort of came up with like for me, and it's a little bit different for everybody, but for me, those were sort of the things, right? And then everything else is okay. Like, so what? I ate a couple of pieces of pizza. Okay. But I had a salad, a green smoothie. I exercised, I slept, I sweated, I meditated, I felt great, you know? So it is, is less about like being perfect all the time and more about recognizing and cultivating what are the things that you need in your life to make you feel good. And even the way you approach relationships, my, my husband and I had a big argument this morning about a couch and where it was going to go. And it was couch delivery and all kinds of drama and some, you know, shop words were said. And then I came back home and we just started laughing. And I said, put out your hand. And I went like that, you know, so just like even not staying mad, you know, because I said to him, I was like, do you have something to say to me? And he laughed. He goes, no, do you have something to say to me? And I said, yes, put out your hand. And, you know, and we laughed and then it was just kind of done because what's the point really, you know, of staying mad about a couch makes no sense. I could not think of a better place (laughs) to end this. You know, it's, it's so inspiring to hear from someone such as yourself that, you know, this is still a journey for you as well. You know, every day we're here, we're showing up, we're living. It's not about being perfect. It's not about living someone else's ideal of what healthy looks like for them. It's about finding healthy for yourself. Could not agree more. Dr. Robin Chetkin, thank you so much for being with us on the All Sorts podcast. You are a delight. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. I am so pumped to be back on the pod with you. And it makes me so happy to share Dr. Chutkin's work. I'm not exaggerating when I say that a big reason I got good at addressing gut stuff so quickly is because of what I learned from her. And we have never met. I discovered her book, Gut Bliss, early on in my practice, read it cover to cover, and then devoured literally everything that I could find on her and her work. And it was so enormously helpful to me, particularly in a space like over a decade ago where we didn't have the kind of information about digestive wellness and definitely not the evidence base we have today in terms of nutrition and digestion. So I am forever indebted to her and I love that you get to hear from her today as well. So you definitely want to sign up for her weekly office hours. She does these free weekly office hours every single week, and then you can learn more from her too directly. And also a little reminder that the January 2020 Eat More Plants Challenge doors are officially open. So if you've done it before, you know, just go get on the list, start hanging out in the community right away. But if this is new for you, It is literally the best $10 you will ever spend on your health, aside from, you know, buying actual food, of course. This challenge and this podcast are part of my mission to make transformative nutrition available to as many people as humanly possible. So I offer this four-week challenge for the price of a couple of fancy coffees because you deserve to feel really good. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the All Sorts Podcast, which is produced by myself and Tracy Ramsey and edited by Brian McCallman. 
We live and work on the unceded ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, Stolo, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 